Good morning. I'm Lauren Anders-Brown, an independent documentary filmmaker. Being behind the camera in over 40 countries has resulted in hours, days, terabytes of footage. So much of what happens to make a shoot possible ends up on the metaphorical cutting room floor. Most of my editing used to take place in planes, trains, or whatever available coffee shop had a decent filter single-origin coffee, and always using the hashtag todaysoffice. Now, I'm picking up the scraps, reviewing old interviews, and scrolling through my social media to give you a behind-the-scenes look at what it is like to travel, produce, film, direct, record, alone, as my own correspondent. This episode comes from a trip exactly one year ago, when I was meant to be in Zimbabwe, filming my most recent documentary, Womenstrate, a one-hour-long documentary of seven women of different generations across Africa and their experiences with menstruation. I was shooting this on no budget and in a very symbolic schedule of four to seven days, equal to that of a woman's average menstrual cycle. I had just felt the feeling of success, wrapping up filming a day, day four to be exact, of my filming schedule in Eswatini, formerly known as Swaziland, one of the two landlocked countries within South Africa. I had met two really endearing women that day, an 84-year-old and a 23-year-old, and felt I was finally starting to see how the documentary was going to come together. When I arrived back at my laptop after a day with no Wi-Fi to find my media clearances for Zimbabwe had not been filed, and I was advised not to continue my schedule as I had planned. I was not willingly going to give that up, though. And all through my dinner, when I should have been enjoying the taste of success, I was consumed with how I could still get to Zimbabwe. I had my own contacts there, after all. I had made them since most of the planning for the shoot seemed to be left on my shoulders. I consulted with my contact there. How likely was it I was going to be allowed to get through the airport? Would my equipment really be confiscated? While I was more worried about crossing the border, my fixer was more worried about how to fill up his car with petrol to even retrieve me from the airport. Zimbabwe has been a difficult place for some time, made even more difficult by the fact that the U.S. dollar, of all the currencies that are generally accepted everywhere in the world, has become a black market currency before my trip, and nearly rendered useless, meaning this might be a trip money would make no difference for. There was a lot to think about, but my glass of pinotage was empty, and I had no more answers or a better plan than when it was full. I didn't want to admit defeat. I had an incredible contributor lined up in Zimbabwe, but my glass was literally and metaphorically empty, and I had to accept that, and I begrudgingly boarded my flight to South Africa. Ten years ago, I first stepped foot on the continent of Africa, in the very same airport I was in, Johannesburg Airport, 
And I found myself here a decade later with a lot of the same reservations of the safety of the city as I did back then. Back then, I remember I was even escorted by a taxi driver into the shopping mall. The first of time I've ever experienced having to be escorted into a shopping mall. And one of the only places I was told I was remotely safe to walk around. But even then he felt obligated to keep an eye on me. I had landed two days earlier than I anticipated. All of the people helping me produce this project were either on vacation or holiday, or were helping me remotely from London. Caroline from London managed to start the groundwork for finding me a qualified doctor who could speak about menopause, who was in her 60s. Being braver and more aware than I was 10 years ago, I returned to the same steakhouse I had been for another working meal to work out how I was going to begin so unexpectedly shooting tomorrow. I went through the list in my mind. So far, in the documentary, I had interviewed a 17-year-old, a 23-year-old. My 50-year-old was still in Zimbabwe. A 63-year-old doctor that I would film at the end of this trip. I was missing a 30-something woman. But where would I begin? Since none of my contacts were present in Joburg, I'd just have to make some. I was immediately taken back to my former self 10 years ago, when this exact country and place inspired me to begin to believe in the power of documentary filmmaking. A lot had changed for me, but that willingness just to even try when the odds were against me was something that had not changed. Some real on-the-street journalism would need to take place, but it was not going to happen at the steakhouse. Every day, I filmed counted towards one of my seven days, and I had three days left. So regardless of whether I succeeded in this very ambitious documentary idea, would only be determined by the rest of this week. I had three days left, so regardless of whether I succeeded in this very ambitious documentary idea would only be determined in this week. I accepted I would have to do my interview with my woman in Zimbabwe over the phone. Her experience she shared was from when she was arrested and refused access to any menstrual supplies or even water while she was incarcerated. Based on that and my lack of access to Zimbabwe, I determined the best visuals to accompany the phone interview would be from inside a prison. Don't worry, I wasn't planning on getting myself arrested in Johannesburg, but Johannesburg did happen to have a decommissioned prison called Constitution Hill. On the website, they mentioned a Mandela Day march to eradicate homelessness. Uh, wait, I happened to be stranded in South Africa on the one day honoring Nelson Mandela one of the figureheads of social justice, I still didn't know how I was going to do it. But knowing that, it gave me the confidence to try. July is winter in South Africa, which is more or less equal to most of the more temperate summer days in the UK. It was a generally comfortable temperature for a lightweight jacket, which worked well for hiding my equipment on me. I'm always aware wearing my kit makes me a target. 
And so to reduce that, I felt it was best to only take what I needed and to find ways to make it less noticeable. My jacket pockets held my audio recorder, backup batteries, and a filter in a case. My scarf was around my neck, draped over my camera, with a small drawstring bag that held my shotgun mic and a handheld rig, in the event I really worked the streets and got an interview that day. I know, I am very much aware of how ambitious all of this sounds. The website for Constitution Hill gave instructions on where the march would begin. It seemed very organized online with instructions for press in big letters, and I thought, well, do you know, that's me today. But when we drove into the Johannesburg Central Business District, my taxi driver took me over a bridge, and it ended up in an area that reminded me of an unfamiliar part of the Bronx. We pulled into an empty parking lot. I couldn't see any press in capital letters or anyone that seemed to be starting a march. I got nervous. My gut told me to just have the driver bring me back to Constitution Hill, where he dropped me off. Feeling a little defeated, I arrived just as it was opening and had the place entirely to myself, exactly the way I wanted it, with no other humans to frame out of my slow-motion camera work. I managed to get ahead of a tour and thought I had explored every corner of the prison. And just when I had no idea what I was going to do next, I heard some voices from a distant chanting and getting louder. It was the march! I ran outside the prison to the street where I caught the tail end of the march as people gathered around, someone standing on a light post, calling out the actions they were going to take to eradicate homelessness. We have to eradicate homelessness together. As we were coming up, as we were walking, we noticed that there are a lot of soup kitchens happening all over. Feeding the homeless people, what are they doing? They're causing, they're creating a level of dependency in them that already exists. But the question is how many people go and feed the homeless people on the streets? Daily. The message that we need to be sharing to the greater community is that we need to work together to eradicate homelessness. And there are two rules. One, we don't give on the streets. We don't give on the streets. We don't give on the streets. Where do we go? I carefully, I treaded carefully. These people didn't know me, and I didn't know them. They could be offended that I would want to capture these moments, and to be honest, I wasn't entirely sure why I was capturing them, but I felt it was the right thing to do. I conservatively filmed, pointing my camera casually away at times, not wanting to attract too much interest or attention, until the man on the lamppost, Togatso announced they'd be taking a group photo and motioned to me, expecting me to take it. I went from being an outlier to an insider in the click of a shutter. He introduced himself as the founder of Voiced in Action, a grassroots social movement based in South Africa, and invited me to join the group to take testimonies of people who had been made homeless. We actually went back inside the prison. I pulled out my shoulder rig, 
Without a lapel mic, it made it difficult for sound with the echoing of the old prison walls, but I did my best to capture the voices and stories pouring out from these people who wanted to share, wanted their voices to be heard. Hi, my name is Nsugu. I live in Mayfair, aka Scarface. I live on the streets in Mayfair. I'm a drug addict, I smoke heroin, aka known as Nyaupen. I'm a guy who smokes Nyaupen, who came here to this organization, joined them because I really willing to change my life and help my peer fellow brothers and sisters and their daughters and sons who live on the street with me to change their life. The problem that I'm crying about is people who are giving their clothes, blankets, food for the people on the street to make them believe that living in the streets is the right thing for them. They can do that. So I, I as Scarface, asking the people of the community and all the world to stop providing people on the streets with food, money, clothing, blankets, and advise them to go to shelters and rehabilitation centers so that they can get things that they need. But even the shelters and rehabilitation uh, uh, rehabilitation centers and the uh, you see the shelters, they must change their attitude. They must know that people who smoke heroin, first of all, they are lacking patience. The only thing that they need is a chicken that they have to wake up and go hustle. After hustle, they smoke. After smoke, hustle. Hustle and smoke. So people got to know that if you want to get those people into their, if you want to get into their mind, you got to sit down with them, know how they're living, how their lifestyles, what they want, what they need. Access that, and so you don't have to give them handouts. Make them, those people are very clever people. They are our next doctors, presidents, our teachers like they're best, they are educated. You should come and look at the girls and guys that I live with, like baby girls that I live with, how smart they are. Like most of the time, just communicate with them, and you you see what kind of people then. Don't ignore us, we're not animals, we're humans. We need we need care, we need love, we need a heart. Just give us a heart, love, attention, time. Then you'll see what kind of nice people are. But if you keep on giving us blankets, food, clothes, money, you're making me tomorrow rob you when I see with earphones. You're making me think that you are uh, me, I'm fine sleeping in that corner street. It's a nice spot for me so that I can go when I'm balustering, I should go and drop that sister out for her cell phone. When I see her counting your money or taking your money out of the ATM, making me tell tell for that. But if you wanna really help me, come talk to me and you understand and know what I want. Right now, I need a haircut, I need a shave, I need a part. I need love, a heart, friends, family, brothers, sisters, someone to love for me, just to be with me, know me, who I am, what I want, what I need. And then I can tell you how we can stop these drug dealers around so way to Johannesburg, all over our streets, because I know how they do it, I know how they sell it, I know where they sell it. So come to me, come to us. Mashaba, stop sitting in that office. Come to us, know our needs. Stop painting our blankets and stuff. Come to us. Cyril Ramaphosa, that change you've got in your pocket. Come, give it to the shelters, the rehabilitation, so that they can speed up the progress, build more rehabilitation and centers and shelters, so that we can know that we are the president who won't mess with us like Jacob Zuma.
<laughs> sorry for that, but it's the truth. You gotta understand, this is life. This is me. So, okay, Scarface, please, know me. Don't think you know me. Don't judge me by this thing. Underneath, I'm just like you. Probably more clever than me, because I am a wise. Wisdom, patience, and knowledge. And every day I learn more about you who think you know more, but you don't know nothing because I know God. You don't know Him. Thank you, guys. I learned Tagatso had experienced homelessness himself. At that moment, he was without a home, but you couldn't tell from his millennial appearance and well kept shoes. He was resourceful and motivated. He could, would negotiate a place to stay with hotels and friends, so he was constantly moving. In him, I began to understand homelessness more as an outcome of the housing crisis than as any kind of outcome of life situation or choice. In every city I've ever lived in, even I feel like I've faced consequences of inflated housing markets with steep rents, that make it nearly impossible for any millennial to own a home and difficult to feel secure in any rented accommodation available. At the end of testimonials, we all came together and had lunch of a simple sandwich and soup. Something about food makes people and sometimes ideas come together. And that was when Tagatso introduced me to Bernice, a 34-year-old homeless woman who is currently staying at a shelter across the street. She would later become my last needed contributor to Womenstrate. Bernice Togatso and a few others walked me around CBD, the Central Business District, after the sun had set, before Bernice had to check into a shelter for the evening. I had met several women and men who could either not qualify for a shelter because they were not from South Africa were staying as together as families or could not afford the nightly expense. Tagatso absolutely insisted on walking me to the Gao train, train station. He insisted it was the safest, cleanest, and easiest way to travel in Johannesburg. And I trusted him. He was right. The local banks had come together to supply their own security on the trains for their employees to take them back and forth. And people like myself also benefited from that. He made sure I got on the train safely, and the next day met me at the same train station to fill my final day, day six of Womenstrate. By the end of my shoot, we all went to lunch together, and I felt the success I had wanted to enjoy only a few days earlier in Eswatini. But it was made all the more better by being surrounded with new friends. Please look for Voice It in Action on every social media platform and support their peer-led grassroots movement working to eradicate homelessness, gender-based violence, and other social initiatives in South Africa. I've also featured some of the photographs from meeting the group in my debut photography book, Stranger Daughter. If you'd like to donate to Voice It in Action, you can do so by purchasing my book on Amazon over these next few weeks and all donations will be donated to support Voice It in Action. And that's it for today. Back next week with more from my correspondent. Do join me.